Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be. This is another edition of The Swift Half with Snowden with me, Christopher Snowden. Half hour chat with somebody of great interest uh, for you here on YouTube. Uh, without any further ado, as we only have 30 minutes, I'd like to uh, welcome my very special guest. I'm delighted today to be joined by trigonometry host Constantine Kissin. Constantine, how are you doing? Thanks for having me, mate. Good to see you again. Looking good in that chair? I'm looking uh, like Harvey Dent. Formula I've One got, field. Yeah, the Formula One field, but also I'm looking like Harvey Dent from the Batman. Do you remember the guy with the <laughs> one, one side of his face is dark and one light? It's the best I can do today. No, looking good, looking good. Um, I, I want to get on to um, the, uh, the, the war uh, later on. But before I do, let's have talk about trigonometry, which I, I'm a huge fan of, and I'm delighted to see it doing so well as it seems to be doing. I, I did it in the relatively early days when you were in a kind of, darkened room uh, above a, uh, a comedy club and now you've got a really nice nice looking office uh well office to set i guess call it and uh, i probably watch more hours of trigonometry than i do bbc one which given that you only do about an hour a week doesn't say much for bbc one but uh, you, yeah you really seems to be really taken off What's, well, the, what's the secret very, of your success? Well, I don't think there is a secret, but it's it's very kind of you to say, and um, I'm sure you'll be back on the set before long uh, in, in, in the new space as well. Uh, you know, is there a secret? We just try to have interesting people on who have something to say, uh, and we try to listen as opposed to interrupt all the time and trying to get them to to admit that they're somehow moral perverts or evil or, or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's much more interesting to get someone on, even someone who's, you know, a, a divisive figure like a Nigel Farage, for example, or we just had a Jeremy Corbyn spokesman on. But I think if you let them talk uh, and you, we, I mean, the one thing we do do is stay away from politicians because you're not going to have an honest conversation with a politician. Uh, but once people are out of politics or if they've never been in it, then you can have a long form conversation. And if they feel like you are treating them fairly, then they will tend to open up more as well. And they will tell you things that you probably wouldn't hear them say in a different interview. And I, I feel like really we're trying to make people human again. Uh, you know, we think of uh, people in the public sphere as these two dimensional caricatures of themselves. And I feel like when you sit down with someone for an hour and you treat them as a human being, it allows them to show who they are. Now, now you may not like who that person is and you know the, the types of people we'll have on the show, they have strong views and people have strong feelings about them, but you at least get to see that this is a real person as opposed to just a, a couple of smears that you've read about them in the paper. And I think uh, people want that. I think we the mainstream media went too far in another direction, obviously, you know, the Kathy Newman, Jordan Peterson interview was that kind of condensed into 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Um, but yeah, I think what, what, what the reason the show is doing okay is because people want that. Uh, and 
as we have more and more people on, I think we learn how to have that conversation and facilitate that conversation in a better way. And that means that with some guests who maybe uh, that it's more of a conversation, like we just had the former Munf Mumford and Sons musician Winston Marshall on the show. And the first 40 minutes is talking about his views and, and his life and how he got cancelled from his band for reading a book, basically. Um, but then uh, the last 20 minutes is actually me sort of pushing my own thoughts and him kind of challenging some of it and us having a disagreement. So it's about, you know, you learn where, where to just get out of someone's way and where to help them along or maybe even to get involved yourself. So, yeah, we've been doing it for four years to the day today oh, as really? we record this, believe it or not. So not that long. But, yeah, that's I think that's really the part of the evolution of the show over time. And of course, you know, as you get bigger, you can attract more guests, a different type of guest. It's becoming easier to persuade people who maybe don't agree with us on a lot of things to come on the show because of the size of the show. They know there's an audience. So if they've got a, a book to plug about why wokeness is great or whatever, it's, it's easier to get them on even for something like that. At least that's the hope. So, yeah, and it's very kind of you to say I appreciate it. And, you know, you know, I respect you a lot. So to hear that you watch more trigonometry than you watch the BBC, even if that is more a criticism of the BBC than it is praise of trigonometry, still is still reassuring. So thank you. What's been your most popular interview in terms of views? The most popular interview in terms of views is the one we did with Posey Parker, oh. uh, the title of which is Trans Women Aren't Women. And this was a video that we did in that room above a comedy club uh, all those years ago where, and I think part of the reason that works is not just that she's, you know, she's got some very strongly held views that she's able to articulate and defend, but also that Francis and I are coming at, at it from a very different position to the one that we're coming at it now where we're really delving into the trans discussion for the first time coming from two comedians working in quite a progressive industry and we're sort of you can see two people trying not to get cancelled while also trying to be honest and asking questions in order to understand and there's a bit of pushback there's a bit of banter there's a bit of humor it's all in good faith while a very difficult issue gets discussed so that's on well over a million views now wow. and uh, i think that's why have you had any run-ins with youtube lately because i know you've had the odd problem with them now and again well that video itself was deleted right. as hate speech if you remember uh, and it was only after we kicked up a big stink uh online and our fans and people former guests like you who've been on the show you know, said something about it, that that video was reinstated. And I think that's partly a, well, it's another part of the reason that it got so big is the Streisand effect. When you try mm -hmm. to suppress something, more people will want to see it. Uh, so I think that was one example. We recently had a live stream that we did taken down uh, by YouTube and then again reinstated after Jordan Peterson made a big fuss about it because we uh, we showed a clip of Barry Weiss, the New York former New York Times journalist, talking about on Bill Maher's show about how uh, cloth masks don't stop the spread of COVID or not effective at it anyway. And when we agreed with it, that was deemed to be contrary to YouTube's medical misinformation rules. And that was taken down, eventually reinstated because, quote unquote, a mistake was made and advice had been given to the people responsible. Uh, so, yeah, whenever you try to have honest conversations, you're always going to run into uh, into censorship, whether that is in the mainstream or whether that is from YouTube. And are you done with stand-up comedy now? Do you think is that is that? I am on a break. 
I, I personally am on a break. Francis is uh, is cracking on with it, and he's got a tour coming up. I'm on a break. There's a very real possibility that break will last the rest of my life. Uh, so we'll just we'll have to see. For me, the main reason I stopped doing it is just the lifestyle doesn't work. You know, my wife and I are about to have a, our first child. Um, you know, and I also have something very interesting that I spend most of my time doing. You know, trigonometry is not only a YouTube show now, it's a it's a small business that we run. We've got a bunch of people working for us now. There's, you know, there's that to manage, and there's I've got a book out very shortly. There's that to manage. So I've got a lot of other stuff going on, and the prospect of driving for three hours down to you know, Brighton or up to Birmingham or whatever, as I used to do four or five times a week. Um, it's just, it, it doesn't appeal quite as much, you know. Uh, but equally, if, if, if a, you know, a few years down the line, I wake up and suddenly I've got, you know, I've got some things that I really want to say and I want to say them in a stand-up format, that's what I'll do. How would your acts go down now, you think, with the war? Because you, you, you have a certain persona, which isn't quite you on, on stage, which might yeah. not go down as well as perhaps it would have done six months ago you know what i always really enjoyed so what, what, for people who don't know me my comedy was always based around hey i'm from russia here's some jokes about that right uh i actually always thrived on that tension um now you have to be careful in different moments in time different jokes will work but i remember in um 2015 after the crimea thing and after the, the russia started the civil war in the east of ukraine uh, I remember going on um, on stage somewhere in Kent and the, the host introduced me, said, he got a bit confused and said, please welcome all the way from Romania. It's Konstantin Kissin. And I went on and I went, I'm actually not from Romania, uh, from, I'm from Russia. Uh, Romania is not Russia, not yet, you know, and got a big laugh. So I always thrived on that tension. And I think in difficult moments, in times of crisis, actually comedy is the mechanism by which you can diffuse some of those tensions and i always enjoy that so i there would there's never been a better time for a russian comedian in the uk in my opinion um you just have to be willing to play with it and be careful with it uh it, but for me the reason I, I i'm not doing it isn't anything to do with that it's just the lifestyle is 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 very punishing and lockdown actually opened my eyes to that much as you know i i'm against many of the measures that were taken being forced not to do comedy showed me how 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 much of an impact it was having on my health, uh, on my relationship with my wife and all sorts of things, you know, and it was not a positive impact, really. So I'm very fortunate to have something I love doing, absolutely love doing as much as comedy, if not more, frankly, with trigonometry. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, I no longer have to do the things that were really not healthy for me. So let's talk about uh, Russia a bit. I haven't mm. given you a full intro because I imagine most people watching this know who you are, but obviously you were born in Russia. Can you just, I don't think you've ever, I've ever heard what your story is of how you ended up in Britain in the first place. Uh, yeah, well, I, I talk about it in, in, in the book quite a bit, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. But basically, uh, long story short, uh, my parents, when I was born, they were uh, poor students at, at Moscow University, Moscow State University. My dad... Uh, was 20. My mum had been 18 for four days when I was born. And they were poor students, really struggling to make ends meet. Soviet Union collapses. Uh, my dad at this point has a sort of mid-level scientific job. And the 1990s, a period that I'm actually about to write a big thread that I hope a lot of people will read about this, either on my Substack or on Twitter, but trying to explain to people how devastating the 90s were to most people in Russia, how it turned everyone's worlds upside down, 
overnight and through no fault of your own you could go from being very successful very comfortable your children you know taken care of and if, if they just got the right grades they'd go to the right university get the right job and everything would be fine to suddenly you you're on the street selling your belongings and your daughter is a prostitute literally like that for many many people but there was also a small number of people for whom the flip was reversed so my dad for example a very smart guy but for reasons we don't have time to get into wasn't ever going to have a hugely successful career in the soviet union mainly because his father my grandfather was a dissident who'd made some comments and the whole family was punished and that meant that his scientific my dad's scientific career was curtailed as a result um but the soviet union collapses and my dad and a few friends start a small building cooperative and then that business becomes a bigger business and that business becomes a bigger business and that business buys another business and and before you know it they founded one of russia's first banks that was the time that it was right, right. and so my dad became quite wealthy in a short period of time he wasn't quite an oligarch he never sort of managed to get you know state property in his pocket or anything like that um but he had a bit of money uh, and uh, the first thing my parents did is they sent me to boarding school in england uh, because they wanted me to be out of that society, the chaotic society that they were living in. And also, who knew whether it was ever going to, you know, it could have easily gone back to being the Soviet Union. Uh, and they they wanted me to have access to a different So they were world. still in Russia, but you were going to boarding school and then flying yeah. back every holiday? Yeah, well, initially every holiday and then less and less, because what happened was my father was went from being a successful businessman to being invited to serve in Boris Yeltsin's first cabinet. Right. And he was a junior minister whose job it was to negotiate with the former countries of the Soviet Union. So he dealt with Ukraine. He dealt with Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, used to constantly be on trips to these countries to negotiate stuff. So I have quite a, a, an understanding of the Russian attitude and mindset to this. My view of what Russia is doing is very different to my dad's, but I have access, direct access to how people think about it over there as well. Right. Very interesting. I didn't know. I didn't know most of that. Mm. Um, so what is the um, what is the kind of the mainstream public view in Russia of what's going on? Well, we, the mainstream public view is whatever they're being told on TV. And yeah. I don't say this in any disparaging way. You've got to understand 80 percent of people in Russia get their news from television. They, they're not on the, the phone like we are checking Twitter, checking this, checking that. 80% of the Russian public get their news from television only, right? And in Russia, there is no independent television anymore at all. There is no independent newspapers anymore. There's no independent radio channels anymore. They've all been shut down. So the, the mainstream view in Russia is whatever they're being told on TV. What are they being told on TV? I'm not saying this is what the people in charge think, but this is what they're, they're telling the Russian public is Ukraine's overrun by Nazis. America is about to invade. Uh, we have to defend ourselves. Uh, this is the battle between Russia and NATO. NATO is expanding and is attempting to take over our country. Uh, they're bringing their, uh, you know, the 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 sort of derogatory term for Europe in in Russia. Uh, in Russian, the word Europe is Europa, uh, and they call it Europa. Right. So yours, all this trans and all this rainbow shit that we've got going on in the West, they're trying to bring all of that over here and destroy our beautiful, intact, traditional society. This is what they call it in the media. Uh, some people might. Yeah. Somebody could go on TV and definitely call it that. No problem. Right. Absolutely. So you're, you, you, are you watching a bit of this 
yeah, Russian state media. Yeah, 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 of course. And you'd be also speaking to people in Russia and yeah. indeed in the Ukraine. Yeah. And what is the connection in this country, help me out here, between being kind of anti-lockdown, anti-vax and being pro-Russian in this particular conflict? Oh, that's I very can't see the obvious. Oh link. no, no, it's very oh, it's very obvious and very easy, Chris. So there's there's two things we should separate. There's obviously the far left, who hate the West, have always hated the West, and they see any challenge to the West, any enemy of the West, as being an ally of theirs. And we can name names, but we don't have to. I think everyone knows exactly the sort of person I'm talking about. So they they are naturally going to be on that side of things uh in terms of on the right uh the sort of anti-establishment question everything right uh well it's very clear what's happened and you 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 keep tweeting about it in terms of giving some examples of how people have gone off the deep end i think over the last six years since brexit since trump we have seen how much the media lies we started this conversation you talking about how you don't watch the bbc anymore well there's a reason for that right uh, and so a lot of people are extremely disillusioned with the media. And some people have developed a sort of adolescent oppositional disorder of some kind where they think that by disbelieving the Western media, they are being healthy skeptics and they're therefore believing Putin's media, which doesn't make much sense to me personally. But a lot of them don't even realize that's happening because the Putin RT propaganda is being laundered through the prism of, you know, I don't, again, don't want to name names because they all get the knickers in a twist and come after me. But you, the people, the very people you're tweeting about on a daily basis, right, who, who watch Russia today, who regurgitate the narrative, but they don't tell you that they're getting it from Russia today. They're just the free thinkers asking questions, right? But suddenly, out of nowhere, these people who didn't know where Ukraine was five weeks ago, they know everything about what's happening in Ukraine, right? These are people who were calling me up at the beginning of, of the war, asking me what's going on, now arguing with me about what's going on, because yeah. they've developed an understanding from somewhere, right? Yeah. Now, th they're getting a lot of that. This is a kind of laundered Russian propaganda narrative that they are ingesting. They're sharing it with their followers. Their follow followers are sharing it with their followers and it propagates in that way. And it feeds into the echo chambers that we're all in. If you believe the mainstream media constantly lying, the Western mainstream media constantly lying, you're going to look for alternative explanations of what's going on, right? And I think for a lot of people, uh, what was happening during COVID was so, I mean, absurd in many ways, right? And what was being said about what was happening was so absurd that a lot of people's trust in the media is broken beyond the point of no return. So they now are in a position where they not only not believe what the media is saying, they will believe almost anything that is contrary to what the media is saying. Right. Yeah. And so I think a lot of this is about that. And also you've got to remember as well, a lot of this is coming from America and in America, there's a long history of isolationism, a perfectly respectable political position. Uh, and I think uh, people in America who don't want America to be involved in yet another foreign war. And by the way, you know, as just in terms of my opinion, I don't I wasn't a fan of the war in Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria or Libya. I'm not again. I'm not in favor of these foreign interventions uh, per se. I think Ukraine's different. But uh, even if I didn't, the point is, you can believe that the United States shouldn't get involved in Ukraine without believing all this other nonsense 
about uh, you know, Ukrainians are all Nazis or Ukraine is all evil or Zelensky is a Western puppet or all of this other stuff. But I think it's become quite difficult to articulate the isolationist position in, in our modern society. It's not polite to say, well, there's people being massacred over there, but I don't care because America first. Many people don't want to have to say that. And so they're looking for evidence, quote unquote, or narratives that help them to justify the position of we don't want to get involved without having to say, I don't give a shit about people being killed. Yeah, I think that's that's all probably true. And there's some willful contrarianism in there as well. But I also think that um, the whole COVID lockdown has contributed in, in two other ways. One is under lockdown, you, know, you, you didn't have people in the pub who would just don't tell you to shut up if you start coming out with crazy talk, right? Mm, <laughs> Instead, mm. you've just got your phone and, and social media and so on. And certainly in the, the, the whole pandemic itself, and this is quite clear from lots of evidence on self-reported well-being and, and actually quite severe yeah. mental health problems, is a lot of people have just cracked under it. You know? And so I agree, some of these people are watching RT and regurgitating all that kind of stuff, or they just, they're, they're, they're dressing up their isolationism in other words. But I mean, the latest thing this week is chemtrails. You've got a lot of these people suddenly talking about chemtrails, which is just like a about as mad a conspiracy theory as you can get. And mm. you just wonder what next. So I, I don't know about you, but I'm quite worried about the long-term mental health implications of what we've gone through the last two years. As am I, which is one of the reasons that while I think we, we'd, we'd both recognize COVID was a serious disease and a serious public health issue, in my opinion, and the reason I said what was happening was absurd, is we we went with protecting ourselves from one threat at the risk of exposing ourselves to many others. And the mental health side of it is just one of those uh, aspects of what we the price that we will end up paying. The economic situation, obviously, as you can see, is deteriorating rapidly as well. That was another concern, and we could we could go on. So that one of the reasons that I felt that after the first lockdown, which I supported as a let's, we don't know what the hell's going on. Let's just, just be, you know, we can afford to lock down for three weeks to flatten the curve. That's what I felt at the time, but that became, you know, a year and a half, two years. And at that point I felt that we were massively misallocating resources and mismanaging risk because we focused exclusively on one. And yes, the price we're now paying in terms of people's mental health and, and many other things, it, it, you know, we're reaping, of what we've shown. So I don't want to go on about COVID, but just out of interest, what would you have done late December, early January last year when you know you had the whole whatever what wave was it then? Uh well it was Omicron. I had COVID last December. Yeah, me too. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of and people I, did. That's the problem. Yeah, and I had it pretty badly, by the way. Francis, my co-host, he 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 had it badly too. We both had it badly. We did a whole episode about it. Um, I think at that point, look, the vaccine was available to everybody who wanted to take it. Right. The hospitals were not overwhelmed. If you want to well, get the vaccine. To be fair, they'd only just started dishing out the vaccine a few weeks earlier. So it was like hardly anyone's been vaccinated. No, no, the booster. The booster. No, I mean the previous year, 2020-21. The pre oh, 2021. Oh, okay. When right. we had the big lockdown for like four or five months, however you measure it. Ending so with... I, so you know, you're talking about December 2020 now? Yeah. Um, I, I, I'll be honest with you, Chris. It's... I've pushed it out of my memory. So I don't even 
because he was that unpleasant personally. But I don't remember exactly that particular situation. My point to you is it ran on for way too long and we yeah, were still putting measures in place in, in December 2021, January 2022, yeah, yeah. only a few months ago. The fact that we were doing anything about COVID other than letting people get on with their life to me was was an overreaction. That's, agree, that's, a, yeah. that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I certainly agree with you there. Um, let's just get back to the the war because I mm. want to ask you because your commentary on this has been fascinating. You know, from 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 the very get go when you did a kind of one on one with um, with Francis. Um, how does this end happily, or how does this end? You know, how how does it end? Do what ladder does Putin need to be given to climb down? Because people kind of now put out their mind the fact that nuclear nuclear weapons are still very much an option. It's just mm. like Ukraine seems to be doing better than a lot of people thought. And now people who maybe a few weeks ago would have gone, well, we'll give we'll give Putin the Donbass or whatever. And then we'll hopefully that'll end. They're now saying, no, we need to push them completely out of the country. And if anything, um, you know, go into Russia or even. Mm. So that, that's obviously not. <laughs> no, going into Russia, no, it's not no, going no, to happen. Absolutely. But it depends I mean, what, what you mean by Russia. There's another conversation to be had about Crimea, right? Is that Russia? Is that not Russia? Yeah. But uh, look, the, I mean, uh, the, there's no point making predictions. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the of the of the invasion, uh, we had that conversation with Francis. I think most of what I said at that time turned out to be entirely accurate. I think there's some things that we still have to wait and see, and there's some things that I said that weren't accurate didn't turn out to be accurate but that is the way of the world when you're making predictions uh so it's one of the things it's taught me is that one ought to be a little bit more careful <laughs> when making predictions so rather than saying this is what's going to happen I, I think we don't know at this point it, it hangs very much in the balance so as we speak today russian forces are about to take mariupol it looks like which is the city in the south which is essentially the key to the south east of ukraine um and at the same time, having withdrawn their forces from the central and northern parts of, of Ukraine around Kiev and Chernigov uh, through Belarus and back to the east, uh, Russia is about to launch a massive assault on Donbass. Uh, and the outcome of that situation is what's going to determine where the next phase of this conflict goes. If Ukraine is over, Ukrainian army, a lot of which is in the Donbass, is encircled which is possible, uh, depending on how the situation goes in the north and the south. You know, that's obviously that's obviously one thing. If the Ukrainians can can uh, resist and hold on to that area and, and put up a strong res resistance and push the Russians back, that will be a, a very different conversation. So that's kind of really as far as anyone can see at this point um, in terms of the, the two possible outcomes. Uh, what is the smallest victory Putin can get away with taking back to the Russian people, given the, all the propaganda you, you mentioned before? What is, what's the least he needs to do in order to not be humiliated? Well, it sort of depends, really, doesn't it? Because if you think back to, for example, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan or, you know, the Soviet Union essentially ran back with its tail between its legs uh, or think about the winter war against Finland in 1940, Stalin invaded with a very clear ambition to make Finland the 16th Republic of the Soviet Union. How did it work out? Well, the Soviet Union lost 120,000 troops, uh, got absolutely destroyed by a tiny Finnish army uh, and ended up nonetheless, quote unquote, winning the war. But they ended up taking a very small piece of territory and selling it 
domestically as a win. And for the reasons that we talked about earlier, with 80% of the Russian public getting all their news from TV, they could really sell almost anything as a win in Russia if they needed to. So the smallest would be uh, some kind of peace agreement under which the two breakaway republics, as they were before the war started now, uh, they get complete independence and Ukraine accepts that they're independent and Ukraine without legally accepting that Crimea is quote unquote Russia, uh, you know, says that they don't have any plans to pursue re pursue reintegrating Crimea back into Ukraine. That, you know, in terms of the smallest, he could easily sell that to the Russian people as a win. Uh, would that be a win? Probably not, but but he could sell it for sure. Would Zelensky be able to sell it to the Ukrainian people? I think that he could, but anything beyond that, this is really one of the, the reasons that um, the negotiations aren't going to get anywhere at this point, is Zelensky has very little incentive at this point to agree to what he's being offered, because what he's being offered is having more pieces of his country bitten off. Right. Uh, and the people of Ukraine, whose army is doing extremely well, uh, despite you know what people might have expected, uh, they have at this point no reason to feel like they should concede anything at all uh, when they're they're fighting so well and effectively against a, a much stronger, uh, supposedly much stronger enemy. So Zelensky could sell that what I just described. Could he sell anything more than that? It remains to be seen, and it very much depends on how the war goes. Right, and you don't think there's really any chance of Putin being unseated? Uh, I don't, but the question that, and Chris, I say this with respect to you, because like I said, you're, you're a very intelligent guy who I respect, but the problem is people in the West ask this question and they don't think of what comes after that. Yeah. Who do you think is going to come to power when Putin's yeah. removed? What, Nick Clegg? Is that, <laughs> is that what you think is going to happen? This is Russia. You know, the idea that the person who will replace Putin is guaranteed to be some kind of liberal reformer is very counter to 12, 12 centuries of Russian history. Hmm. Uh, we haven't had liberal reformers, really, other than Boris Yeltsin, who is universally despised in Russia and seen as having led the country down and destroyed it's it's greatness and stability and whatever so uh careful what you wish for is what i say to that but no i don't think putin will be unseated at least not now and on that cheery note we have to end it because <laughs> but absolutely fascinating talking to you constantly thanks very much for coming on the show hope to see you again quite soon thank you very much you at home for watching if you want to give the ia some money please do so ia.org.uk slash donate or patreon.com slash ia london many people have said to me you know chris i'd like to give the ia money but i'm worried that you might you know tell people about it you might name me don't worry 100 snowden guarantee that will never happen it will be a cold day in, in hell before we disclose our donors but you're welcome to shout about it if you choose so yourself anyway i'll see you again or more accurately you might see me again in two weeks time when we have another great guest on take care until then thank you and goodbye well, if you enjoyed that conversation, why not watch one of these other videos? And while you're here, remember to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. That way, you'll never miss out on a single IEA broadcast.